Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. But, you know, he came off this great victory and he let his guard down and he, he falls into this area of sin, which he should have never have done. And this is what we tend to do. We, we let our guard down uh, when we've gained some kind of spiritual victory or uh, and it causes us to want to relax and kick back. And often these kind of things happen too when we're on retreats. Hi everyone, and welcome to Truth in Christ Radio for today. Gideon was remarkably obedient and filled with faith in the extreme moment of battle. The routine of daily living seems to have been a greater test of his character. This is true for many, and the challenges of daily living are more difficult than those of the extreme moment. As followers of Jesus Christ, We are always accountable to him in every area of our lives, especially after he allows us a spiritual victory. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's lesson. And you know, it's interesting that it it was a relatively easy thing hundreds of years prior to this for God to bring Israel out of Egypt. But even it took him hundreds of years. Not that it was God's fault, but it, it was easy to get Israel out of Egypt, but it was hard to get Egypt or to get um, Egypt out of Israel. And so because of their idolatry, because of the, the nations that were in the promised land that they didn't completely drive out, they became entangled and ensnared again with their idols. And this had been something that we're going to see as we go along had been something uh, in their track record that, that went on for hundreds of years. And it wasn't really until God had allowed them the northern ten tribes to go into captivity by the Assyrians, and Judah and Benjamin by the Babylonians. And it wasn't until they came back from Babylon that that they really had kind of severed their ties with this whole idea of idolatry like they were um, accustomed to doing up until that time. They were finally broke of it, in a sense. And and they never really continued like they were. They weren't perfect, but nobody is. But God seemed to have drilled that point home to them But notice this ephod. It was something that only the high priest was supposed to wear, the ephod. And the ephod, remember, had the 12 stones of each one signifying the tribe of Israel. And it would have a pocket in it where they could have the Urim and Thummim, these two stones, a white and a black stone. And so now Gideon makes this golden ephod. And it's very uh, possible that he wasn't really trying to 
make himself a priest per se. Uh, it could just have been a symbol of civil authority rather than some kind of religious or priestly authority. And this is proven because it wasn't until after his death that the children of Israel went um, whoring after it in a sense. So all the time during Gideon's life and while he was alive, they, they didn't worship it. They didn't, uh, it didn't become a problem until after his death, which is usually the way it goes. Whenever the, 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 the judge dies, then the children of Israel, as is typical of this, and typical really of human beings, of the sinful, of just our nature uh, that we're born with, <laughs> we go downhill and, and we go back to like a, like a dog returning to its vomit. So they did with their idolatry. And so, um, you know, the ark... Uh, the tabernacle and the priesthood at this time was still in Shiloh, which was to the south of Manasseh where Gideon was and where this ephod had been set up and where they began to worship it. But all the while they were doing that, you can just see the departure of the children of Israel because instead of going down to the ark, and and maybe they were uh, going down there for some of the feasts, don't really know at this time, but the priesthood was already established down there. It was corrupt. Certainly, and it wasn't doing well, but there it was in Shiloh. And we see it there. Um, We see Joshua erecting the tabernacle in Joshua chapter 18, and it's there until 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3. Hundreds of years go by, and then finally the Philistines take the ark, and the the priesthood is kind of dismantled somewhat at that time. But then it says, uh, Then Gideon made an ephod, and he set it up in his city, Oprah, uh, which means fawn, that's the name of the word. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to the Gideon and his house. And this uh, place called Oprah is really right on the border. It's on the southern border of Manasseh and uh, just north of the border of Ephraim. So there's this little town there where this place was set up. And um, so all Israel played the harlot with it. And it's interesting that God had Gideon destroy his father's altar of Baal. And it's like, it's like going from one altar, pagan altar, to what they think might have, might have been a little more sanctified altar, but it's really no different because if God is not involved in it and they're worshiping something other than God, it doesn't matter what the object is. They could have put the Ark of the Covenant there, and if they worshiped the Ark, it would still be idolatry. They had to worship God, not some kind of image made of gold. Again, it was easy for God to get Israel out of Egypt. It took a long time for God to get Egypt out of Israel. And uh, as is true for some of us when we came out of the world and uh, living in the world and the lusts of the flesh, you know, uh, God can, can bring us out of that. And then it's a process of sanctification to get the world out of us. And that just takes time. And we have to be patient with that process. But God is involved in that process. But notice that it didn't matter because uh, this altar of Baal that, that, that Joash, uh, Gideon's father, had made, it was really no different than this uh, golden ephod that Gideon had erected. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. We're going to look at uh, an, uh, something, an event in the life of Israel. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4. And as soon as we start reading this, you're going to understand why we're going here. Because 
Again, it wasn't long after God had gotten Israel out of Egypt. They were in the desert. Moses was leading them. And look at what happens in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Does that sound like something that God would do? I'm going to deliver you from a place where you're, you know, you were dying and, and having a tough time. But I'm delivering you so that I can kill you out here. You know, they just they had no concept, and certainly they were struggling. But they were also very disobedient, and they were um, God was trying to prove them. That's what the Bible says. He proved them in the wilderness to see if they would be obedient to Him or to follow their own carnal desires, which they had learned in Egypt. <laughs> Again, God trying to get Egypt out of them. But notice, verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us out here, out of Egypt, to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, there's no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread, this manna that God was giving to them miraculously every single day, several hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even a million or two, and now they're complaining about this worthless bread, they say. So the Lord, as a result, he sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, notice, when he looks at it, he shall live. Now, does that require faith? When you're bitten by a serpent and you're supposed to look at this bronze serpent that's up on a pole, that requires faith of me to look at that pole and believe, and then God would heal them. That requires faith, doesn't it? Now, uh, and so we have this pole, and you remember when we were looking at the the churches of Ephesus or the churches of of uh, Pergamum and um, that that they had these uh, altars to these different Greek gods in these cities in the in the first century A.D. and one of them was Asclepius, who was uh, you know this the serpent around the pole with the wings of Hermes. We see that in all the medical, it's, a, it's an icon for medicine and uh, for health care. And that's where they got it. That's where the Greeks kind of ran with this idea of medicine. And, and they took it right here from the Bible, I believe. And they, they just uh, twisted it and made it into a god, right? No different than what we're going to see happens here. So, uh, so they were supposed to look at the pole and the serpent on it. And if they looked at it, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he would live. And now fast forward now a couple hundred years, and we get to Second Kings chapter 18. And again, this fits very much with what we're reading here with Gideon and this bronze or this uh, gold ephod that he made because the children of Israel began to worship it, to began to make it an idol. And no different with the children of Israel here, hundreds of years beyond what we're reading tonight. And so it says in Second Kings chapter 18, now Hezekiah, so we're several hundred years beyond. It says, it came to pass in the third year, we're looking at the first verse in Second Kings chapter 18, 
It said, It came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he became king. And his mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was evil, I'm sorry, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Hezekiah was one of the reformer kings along with Josiah. He says he he removed the high places. Notice, this is important. You can circle this or underline this verse. He removed the high places, which was a good thing. And he broke the sacred pillars, which is another good thing. He cut down the wooden image, which is this um, idol of uh, where they would worship Asherah. And he broke in pieces, notice, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan. So, we again we still see Egypt still in Israel. God, you know, hundreds of years have gone by, and and they just they they have a propensity, just as any people group does, if they resort or if they move away from the one true living God, the only recourse is to worship the works of man's hands. What's left if if you don't have a God who's supreme over all things? And what else are you? Uh, left to the the work of man's hands. It's it's humanism. It's it's uh, worshiping idols, and that's what they got into. And so, you know, beware after a battle is won, because Gideon now, after this great victory of the Amalekites and the Midianites, what does he do? He kind of he doesn't take the the kingship. He takes the money. He takes the gold. He fashions it to an ephod. And, and, and they began worshiping it after his death, and it became a problem for the children of Israel. And isn't it just like when you come off of some spiritual battle or a physical battle? Maybe you've been wrestling with an issue of sin in your life, and all of a sudden you, you, you begin to get victory over it. And then uh, you get encouraged, and, and, there's a, and, and if we're not careful, we can let down our guard. And it's very possible this happened to Gideon after all of this Huge battle and all this great victory that God did against all odds. 300 men against 135,000. Think of it. I mean, if there's not a time to have a Super Bowl party, it would be after something like this. You know, get out the wings and break out the, you know, 120-inch television and watch, you know, Dallas uh, Cowboys play. And so, but, you know, he came off this great victory and he let his guard down. And he, he falls into this area of sin, which he should have never have done. And this is what we tend to do. We, we let our guard down uh, when we've gained some kind of spiritual victory or, uh, and it causes us to want to relax and kick back. And often these kind of things happen too when we're on retreats, you know, where the Lord really speaks to you. You know, you can go up to the castle in Pennsylvania uh, when we used to go there or to um, Odasaga. We could go to Odasaga and the Lord could speak to you there and really encourage you. And really, you're kind of like on a mountaintop. You know, we're eating this really good food. We're getting fed. We're going for walks. Life is good. Life is good. And then we get really built up. We get really encouraged. And then you can expect after that, that when you go back home, when you get off that mountaintop and you start climbing down the hill, there's going to be problems awaiting you. And, you know, those times of refreshing are good, and we, we need to hold on to those things. And God does that to encourage us, but we have to understand that we can't stay there forever. 
There, there has to come a time when we have to come down off of the mountain and face reality because those mountaintop experiences are really that for us. They're, they're there to shore us up, to, to build us and to renew us and to restore us. But it doesn't negate the fact that we got to go back to problems back at home. we got to go back to disobedient kids. we got to go back to a situation at work that we're not excited about. We see that in the life of David even. Remember, when his sin with Bathsheba occurred, it says that it came at a time when the kings were supposed to go out to battle, but he laid back after all of his years of victory, and he just decided, you know what, I'm going to stay back home. And perhaps he knew Bathsheba, you know, her husband would be going out to the battle because he knew he was part of the army. And you know, David just decided to kind of kick back. And I wonder what happened when he walked out on the top of his uh, palace that night on a, on a nice evening. Just, you know, kicking back when he should have been engaged. And that's where David fell into his one of his greatest sins of his life was at that time uh, resting on his laurels, resting on his lees. And so after, uh, there's usually... Uh, some kind of you know defeat after not always, but you can bet that whenever God is speaking to you and and really encouraging you, the devil knows that as well. And the first chance he gets, he wants to cut your legs out from underneath you and ha- cause you to fall flat on your face. Turn with me to Matthew chapter seventeen. This is a really interesting passage of scripture. Matthew 17, looking at verses 1 through 21. Let's just read it, and I think it'll make sense to you. Uh, it's, it's the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him. And you remember what happened on that mountain, you know, as they saw. Uh, Moses and Elijah, they they were completely overwhelmed. Peter makes a fool of himself. And then finally on their way down, it says, um, now as they came down from the mountain, verse 9, that Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him saying, what then do the scribes say, or why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah is come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And certainly, Jesus here is talking about uh, John the Baptist's ministry uh, and then the disciples understood, verse 13, that he spoke to them concerning John the Baptist. But notice what happens. So now they have this great, wonderful uh, mountaintop experience, and now they're going to go down the mountain. So they've had this wonder. I mean, think of it. Uh, I mean, to, to see Jesus transfigured before them and for him to just unveil some of his glory, however much of it he did, totally blew them away. And then they see Moses and Elijah speaking to him. And one of the Gospels tells us that they're speaking of Jesus' demise. They're speaking of his crucifixion. And so they're, they're discussing this. And so they're having this great high. I mean, think of it. They're, he truly is God Almighty in the flesh. But then they come down from the mountain. And when they come, 
When they had come to the multitude, after coming down from the mountain, a man came to him, kneeling to him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic, suffers severely, for he often throws him into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. So Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out, and the child was cured that very hour. But notice what happens in verse 19. The disciples came to him privately. You know, they, they just experienced this great, um, you know, experience. And they said to Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast it out? You know, we just had this wonderful vision of you being glorified and coming off that mountain. There was like nothing we could, nothing that we couldn't do. You know, that they were walking on air in a sense. And he said, because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will, be, it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and by fasting. And so they have this spiritual defeat after this mountaintop experience. And, and that's typically what happens. Just like Gideon having this great experience, and then finally the devil likes to come in and just take your legs out from underneath you, totally discourage you. Maybe you fall into an area of sin again after God has given you months of victory of it, and now you find yourself dabbling in it again and and feeling totally condemned, feeling like you're not even saved perhaps. And yet, if you're in that position tonight, and maybe even this week you've fallen into something that God had delivered you from years ago, and maybe even you had some confidence in your own flesh that, you know, I can do this, I can do this. And then, and then you get kind of walloped by, you get blindsided by this area of sin coming into your life. And, and um, these things happen. But the thing is, is we have to be on our guard just as much after a battle or after a mountaintop experience, just as much as before it happened. Because usually before a battle, we're on our face, we're on our knees, we're begging God. And then after the experience is, is, is you know, we've gotten the victory we kind of rest, and that's when the devil loves to play games with us. And so it happens to all of us. And I've noticed it in my own life many times how the Lord uh, or the devil likes to do that. He likes to give you a victory, and then he just comes and he takes your legs out from underneath you through various means. Sometimes it's just discouragement. You know, you come off of a mountaintop experience, and, and then the very next day your hot water heater blows up and floods your basement. And, um, you know, you're... Um, House catches on fire, burns to the ground while you're at work, and you come home to the you know smoldering uh, flames, <laughs> you know, and um, these things happen. But notice in verse 28, it says, "Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more." And that was that was the end of the Midianites, and the country was quiet for forty years. It's interesting. This forty years, this is the last period of time where there was peace like this in the Book of Judges. The last time they had this period of reprieve. And so let's go right into verse 29 here. It speaks of the death of Gideon. It says, Then Jerubbabel, remember, Jerubbabel was uh, Gideon's name, and his father, Joash, changed his name to Jerubbabel, which means let Baal plead, because it was Gideon who broke down that altar of his father's that was used by the whole town. Uh, evidently. So Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and he dwelt in his own house. So he goes back to Oprah. 
And so Gideon had 70 sons who were in it, who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And you know, it's interesting, even though Gideon wasn't made a king, he lived like a king. He had uh, this golden uh, ephod, and he had 70 wives, which is, uh, which is huge. And he had one concubine from another area. And it says, um, and this just really speaks of, uh, of polygamy, which we know is never a good idea. Uh, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that, God, that marriage was meant for one man and one woman. And whenever a man in any culture begins to multiply wives, he's in trouble. He's in trouble. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Judges. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things, such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play and Apple Podcast. You may also join us on Sundays and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.